When it comes to our spiritual life, so often what happens is we've marked a certain place and we've said that was the best time maybe even spiritually for you. Now, I know that wasn't the question for you, so you might have been speaking about other things, but we marked that place. I firmly believe that every single year it needs to be a greater year because we're more intimate in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to understand that as men. Our children need to see that. Our children need to see us. When they're 15, they should see a more fervent lover of Jesus than when they were 12. And we've just stopped and we've re- we just rest where we, we've always been. We're not wanting to put on new spiritual shoes, right? And we're wearing the same blasted pair that we've always worn. And I want you to have the guts, the courage to go, you know what? I need to show my wife I need to show my children, I need to show my neighbors, I need to show my colleagues that I'm growing spiritually and to be more intimate with the Heavenly Father. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to go. And I'm I'm just discovering more and more as the longer I've been in ministry, it just scares men to do it. If we're honest, it scares us to to look at someone and go, you know, I need to grow spiritually. If this whole God thing is real, I need to grow spiritually. How often do you look at somebody and say that? We need to start being honest about it. And I think that's fun, by the way. I think that's, that's one of the best parts of my life is when someone starts to become real about their faith and you get to dive into that together, that's what we're going to do today. We don't have, we got about two and a half hours to do it. That's it. But I want you to have the freedom to go, you know what, that's me. I, I want 2017 to be the best year. But I can tell you right now, 2018 is going to be greater than 2017. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean there's not going to be difficulties. But you're going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your marriage is going to, to flourish because the two of you are going to recognize what a godly marriage looks like. You just go ahead and you just, you're going to say, I'm doing it. I'm not going to let anything hold me back. That's where we're going. I'm not going to let the world say I can't do it. I'm not going to let anybody else that that fortitude that you had when you started your business and you're like, you know what, I'm doing it and you poured all that energy into starting a business that you may not even own anymore or that business that you're going to sell one day or retire from one day, it really, it it doesn't matter if you're not focusing on Jesus Christ as you do it. So that's what we want to do. And so God, I come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. I, I pray that you give us that opportunity to recognize that this year is going to be greater than last year, that today is going to be greater than yesterday, not because of what we can necessarily do, but because of the decisions that we make to focus on the glory of God, to focus on the the majesty of who you are, commit ourselves to you, submit ourselves, surrender to you, run after you, give you glory at every single turn and around every single corner, no matter what it holds, and we can be an influencer for the gospel that's a great life Lord that's a life of significance that's a life of purpose and so we we just we give it all to you today I thank you for these men I pray that you'll encourage them in Christ's name amen let's stand up together sing a couple songs and we'll jump into some lessons sing this with me
perfect in all of your ways. We thank you for the perfect way that you father each of us as your sons, God. And I just pray in these moments together, even this morning, that we would be reminded, God, of how we can impart that same, those same attributes, Lord, that we experience from you day to day to our own families, God, to our own kids. Lord, and for those of us that are here today that may be just at a crossroads of wanting to do things differently and to do them better and to do them in a way that would just bring honor to you. I just pray that you would give us um, the insight, God, the boldness or the obedience to truly do those things, God, that would bring about eternal change within our families. Thank you for the, the opportunities that you give us, God, well beyond just family, God, to lead and to show the significance, God, of who you are. And so we truly welcome you into this place, God. I pray this would be a great time of sharpening, of encouragement, of laughter, or but most importantly, just change. That we would leave here different, God, that we would have different goals, we would have different perspectives, we'd have a different mindset in how we can honor you in all that we do. 
We love you, God, so much. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. I want to introduce you to a, a friend of mine that I met just soon after coming to the church a couple of years ago, Dale Redeer. Dale is with the Man in the Mirror Ministry. The materials that we're using are from Man in the, uh, in the Mirror Ministry. And uh, this is my copy of that book when it first came out. And it so impacted my life and used it in impacting the lives of men. But what I was not aware of is how this ministry has developed over the years to providing a lot of resources and assistance to churches in their men's ministry. So I want you to give a shout out and just say, hi, Dale. Okay, here we go. Hi, Dale. Hi, Dale. Good morning, men. Uh, it's such an honor to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, I live just up the street about 300 yards down the road, so it was a real short drive for me in here this morning. Uh, but I just wanted to encourage you guys. Um, this event is actually the first exposure that I had to Man in the Mirror. And it drastically changed uh, the course of my life. I guess if you step back a little bit from that, about 11 years ago, I felt the call to ministry. And I was in uh, full-time business positions. Um, talked to my wife about it and um, started pursuing that. And then about five years ago, uh, went through the Success That Matters uh, material that you're going through right now today and yesterday and uh, really changed the course of my life at that point. So I'd encourage you guys just to lean into this material, um, lean into the opportunity to be part of the follow-up groups. Um, that was a huge impact to me and in my life. Um, so just great to see all you guys. Um, love to tell you more about the ministry if you're interested in that. Um, Jim has my contact information, or you can go to maninthemirror.org, too, and you can find me there. But love to hear stories uh, from you guys, too. So feel free to, to send me stuff based on this weekend, how it impacted your life. Uh, let me know how it goes. We're going to pray for Dale just before he, he has a seat and joins us with the rest of the time here. Dale has just had a new responsibility thrust upon him. He was kind of a regional director for Man in the Mirror. He's just taken on the responsibility for the state of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and New York in leading this ministry. So I want us to pray for him. Let's do that. Father, thank you so much for men that you're raising up within our church and within our nation to be able to make a difference for you. And Father, I pray that you'll encourage and strengthen and protect Dale and his marriage and his family and his walk with you. And God, use him to be able to multiply in other churches and in other men what you're doing in his life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, Dale. Okay, men, I want to have everybody that's married stand up. All right, if you have been married less than five years, raise your hand. Okay, you can sit down, all right? If you've been married 10 years or less, raise your hand. All right, you can sit down. If you've been married 20 years or less, raise your hand. Whoa, you can sit down. If you've been married 30 years or less, raise your hand. You can sit down. If you've been married 40 years or less, raise your hand. You can sit down. If you've been married 50 years or less, raise your hand. Okay? Anybody been married 60 years? Anybody been married 60 years here? 
60? Any, any 60s? All right, guys, okay, guys between 50 and 60, stand back up again. Okay. How many years? 50 and a half. He counts every single day. <laughs> Charles, 53, 44. What was that again, Dave? 50 this year. 50 this year? 52. 52 years. So who's got the longest? Charles, Pastor Charles. Let's give right him a here. hand. All right, I want to know who's been married the shortest. Anybody here that's been married less than a year? Raise your hand. Less than a year. Okay, stand up. How long? 11 months? Four months. Okay, all right, give him a hand. Very cool. Charles, any advice that you would give to these guys who have been married less than you? Now, this is not a sermon, Charles. Come on. All right. <laughs> Treasure and forgive. Mm. Wow. Wow, that's good. That's really good. Man, I want to just tell you a little bit of the, the backstory of my relationship with Bert. We're celebrating this summer, next month, 44 years of marriage. Bert was born into a family. Um, Bert was born into a family where her mom and dad had a tremendous amount of conflict. She can remember she was a, the third of three children, the youngest, and she can remember being woken up in the middle of the night to hearing her parents have conflict. And she can remember times when her mom and dad would bring the three children down to actually umpire who was right and wrong in the conflict of the marriage. Imagine being eight years old, and that's your experience—the terrifying experience of that. When she was 10 years old, she was sent with her grandmother to Florida. Her, bro her brother went to Boy Scout camp. Her mother um, sold the house, auctioned it off. Her father went with her older sister to Mexico to get the divorce. Bert knew nothing about what was happening. She came home, and everything she had was sold. The house was sold. And her mom remarried an alcoholic within one year and became an alcoholic. And that was her family background. My parents uh, had... Tremendous conflict. I can remember weeks on end when they would not even talk to each other. When I was 14 years old, my mom, in the middle of the night, moved out while my dad was at work, took us kids with her, uh, rented a trailer on the other end of our town, and for a full year we lived separate from them. Mom and dad tried getting back together and trying to make marriage work and just continued to have painful conflict. I can remember just the terror in my heart sometimes when, when they were having that kind of conflict and the, and the fear brought to me as a child. And it was when I was 18 years old that my mom and dad came to a church like this and heard the gospel, and my dad trusted Christ as his personal Savior. I was the first one in my family to know Christ in a personal way. Dad trusted Christ as a Savior in our living room when I was 18 years old. My mom was saved two weeks later, and all of a sudden, the gospel of Jesus Christ started making a difference in our marriage. But men, you got to realize that at that point, they had almost 25 years of marriage experience that was horrible. And they had all of that to unpack. All of that to unpack. By the way, I had the joy of performing a marriage ceremony for my mom and dad in their 50th wedding anniversary. And I can tell you, there are no hopeless marriages. 
there are no hopeless marriages. There may be hopeless people, but there's no hopeless marriages. So picture this, guys. With that kind of background, I'm 19, Bert's 18, we get married. And what we knew about marriage, you could put into a thimble and have a full thimble full of water. We're going off to Bible college together to, to pursue ministry. And I would only had one marriage that I had seen in my life that I said, that's what I want. And it was our pastor and his wife. But guys, you know, when you get married, if you didn't figure this out, it's like whitewater canoeing. You have two rivers coming together. You've got two different genders, two different personalities, two different sets of needs, rights, and expectations. You have two different sexes. You have two different um, uh, family backgrounds. And whenever you have two rivers coming together, you get white water. White water is fun if you know where the rocks are. If you've mapped out the rocks. We had map, mapped out the rocks. And I want to tell you, the first few years of marriage were horrific for us. You know the highest rate of divorce in America today is year three. Highest rate of divorce in America today is year three. It goes up year one, year two, year three is a spike here, year four, year five, it levels out. And then the greatest risk after that becomes in the 20s because of menopause, midlife, and the empty nest. And if you have not built a strong marriage, when those things hit, the reality is it is tough water again. I want to just talk to you a little bit about how you can make a new best friend and your wife. And I'm serious about this. This is not smoke and mirrors. This is the real stuff. And we want you to grab a hold of your Bibles, grab a hold of your information there, and we're going to kind of look at that. You know, one guy thought that he had found the secret of a happy marriage. So they'd go out to dinner. They would go out to dinner twice a week. Soft candlelight, beautiful music. Quiet dinner, long walks home. She goes on Tuesdays, he goes on Fridays. That's not what I'm talking about, guys. That is not what I'm talking about, okay? So love is the glue that holds marriage together. If you're not familiar with the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter. And you're going to see why as we just look at this, uh, this passage together. This, the Apostle Paul's writing this. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, just so much noise. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries and knowledge of God, and, and I have faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, he said, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, in other words, great charity, and surrender my body to the flames, I'm a martyr for Christ, but I have not love, he says, I gain nothing. So in other words, I do all of these heroic things. And we could add to that, man, and say, if I'm successful in business or in my career or my profession or I make a lot of money and I get all the toys, I get the, I get the cottage, I get the motorcycle, I get the boat that I want, I get all of that, the fifth wheel I want, I get that stuff. And I don't have love? Zero, man. Bottom line, it's nothing. So he said, um, love is patient. Love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in the evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Now men, here's what I want you to do with this. I want you to put your name in there. Is this true of you? Jim is patient. 
Jim is kind. Jim does not envy. Jim does not boast. Jim is not proud. Jim is not rude. Jim is not self-speaking. Jim is not easily angered. Jim keeps no record of wrongs. Jim does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Jim always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Guys, I can tell you that's not always true of me. Matter of fact, in that first year of marriage, I realized how self-centered I was. And that I had the ability to crush the spirit of my wife. It was a pretty humbling reality. And I, I began to memorize this passage of scripture in the first year of marriage. Because when I realized that I, we were having conflict or having difficulty in our marriage, I would review this passage in my mind. And it's like the Holy Spirit put me in a half Nelson down on the floor under conviction saying, okay, Jim. I couldn't even get past the patient kind part usually and saying, you know, no, I'm not. I need to do business with God. God changed me. And I began to pray and say, God, I don't have that ability to love my wife the way the Bible says I'm to love. By the way, some of you guys here are not yet married. Don't check this out, man. You need this because it applies to you right now in many ways, and it may apply to you for the rest of your life. So be sure to, to, to buy into this. So when your wife comes home and hears you coming home at the end of the day, what's the, the signal that you're coming home? Maybe you text her before you leave the office. Maybe it's the garage door going up. What's that signal that she gets that you're coming home? And what is her internal reaction when that garage door, for me, it's the garage door going up. Bert, here's the garage door, and she knows I'm driving in the driveway. What's the reaction inside? Oh, no, here he is. Or, oh, yeah, my best friend's home. What's the reaction that your wife has emotionally? When she gets that first sense that you're walking through the door and coming home, what's that like? What is that like? Well, in Genesis 2.24, we're told that one of the, your wife's greatest need is, according to Genesis 2.24, this is a key verse on marriage in the Bible. God says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife or cling to her in a covenant relationship, and the two become one flesh. Okay? A woman's greatest need is for intimacy. And intimacy means that I know you and at the deepest level and that I accept you. Matter of fact, you can spell intimacy this way, this way I-N-T-O-M-E-S-E-E, -E -E, into me see. Intimacy is the ability that you're opening yourself up so that another person can see the inside of you. They know your thoughts, they know your feelings. But for a lot of wives, they never feel like they have that kind of intimacy with their husband. One wife described it this way. I feel like my husband is an island, and I'm in a rowboat rowing around the island trying to find the inlet into his soul. I want to know him, and I feel like I don't really know him in, in terms of his inner world, his inner world. See, God tells us that because of the, the design of God, that God gave to a wife a deep desire to know and have intimacy with her husband. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, we find that when, when sin entered the human experience, it messed everything up, man. It messed everything up. And in Genesis 3.16, we find that they were, God then, as a part of the curse, gave this desire for a wife that, that only her husband can satisfy. And the frustration in a marriage often is she's seeking that intimacy from you to know you and, and you hold back on that, and it becomes a great painful and manipulative thing. Because Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from each other. 
and from God. They hid among the trees of the garden. And, and like if you, there had been a population sign on the Garden of Eden, it would have been population two. Think about this. The Garden of Eden was the honeymoon cottage for Adam and Eve. There was no one else there. It's just the two of them in a beautiful garden. But when sin enters in, they clothe themselves to cover themselves, and they hide from God. And when God confronts them, their response is to say, Adam says, the woman that you gave to be with me. And the blame game starts right there. And in every marriage since then, that's kind of the response. So rather than intimacy, there becomes these walls that are built up. These walls that are built up. A wife wants her husband to give him, to give her the first place in his life, the same way that she gives him the first place in hers. Men, after God, your wife wants to know that she's first in your life. Before your business, before your work, before your golf game, before your hobbies, before anything else, before your possessions. Even men hear this before your kids. Men, I want to tell you, a child-centered family is going to crumble. God wants there to be a Christ-centered marriage and a marriage-centered family. You get that? A Christ-centered marriage and a marriage-centered family. The greatest security you can give to your kids is to have a Christ-centered marriage and a marriage-centered family rather than a child-centered family. I remember telling my kids as they got a little bit older, I said, listen, I love you a lot, but I love your mom more than you. And I love your mom a lot, but I love Jesus more than I love your mom. And that's the reason that we have the family that we've got. Because you kids are going to leave home. I hope so. And, and that's kind of why we're raising you, so that you will leave home. Okay? But when you leave home, mom's still going to be here and me. And we're planning on having a life together. And I want you to know that we want to keep Christ at the center of our family and our marriage at the center of our relationship with you because that's what gives you the stability and security that you need. So her need is for that. Now, men, I want you to imagine for the rest of our time together that your wife has an emotional bank account. You heard about the young married couple that got married, and um, all of a sudden the husband realized that his wife didn't understand a lot about finances. There was a book, by the way, some years ago that was written it's called, uh, by Dobson, said what wives wish their husbands knew about women. That's a pretty good book. But then somebody wrote another book, what husbands wish their wives knew about money. That was kind of an interesting book, too. And so in this particular case, this couple got married, and all of a sudden this guy's realizing Man, our, our, our checking account is always overdrawn. So he tries to have a sweet conversation with his wife and saying, honey, you just, you're spending too much money. She says, no, there's plenty of money. I have more checks. <laughs> there's plenty of checks there. Listen, imagine with me that your wife has an emotional checking account. And guys, you figured out that you got to make more deposits than withdrawals on your checking account. I, I hope that's not new information to you today. You get that. you got to have more money going in than money going out in terms of deposit. Well, I think one of the things that happens in our, the, emotional, the emotional account is that we often as men are making withdrawals all the time. Here's an example. You have a rough day at work, and you come home, and on the way home, you just say, I just want to crash and burn. And so you have dinner, you don't talk a whole lot, and you sit down in front of the TV, and you're just kind of channel surfing, or you're reading the paper, 
and your wife has been waiting all day for that time with you, and you're just sitting there, and you're just chilling out. Let her take care of the kids. Let her do all that. Or you just say, I'm going to go out and mow the lawn. I'm going to do that kind of stuff. But, but the day ends, and, and there's expectations that are there that she's had, and you're just all into just taking care of yourself. Guys, I want to tell you, you just made a huge withdrawal. But if your wife drinks coffee, and you get up in the morning and you make coffee, and when you hear her stirring, you bring that first cup in, you just made a big deposit. Okay? There's a lot of different ways that you can make emotional deposits. I want you to write down these five words, guys, someplace on your notes. And, and there's a page where you can flip over that's got lines where you can put some of the stuff down that you won't have room for there. Um, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Languages of Love. And I'm going to give you the five languages of love. Time, talk, gifts, uh, a touch, gifts, and service. Time, talk, touch, gifts, and service. Five words. Time, talk, touch, gifts, and service. God has wired your wife that's, that there's a, a top two or three of those that really are deposits on her account. Time, focused attention time. Talk, conversation. Touch, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, uh, gifts, not expensive, just even a card can be a gift. Or service when you're meeting her need. You need to learn to speak her love language to be able to do that. An emotional bank account. Emotional bank account. You see, every single encounter with your wife is either a deposit or a withdrawal. Every single encounter you have with her this weekend, you're either making a deposit or you're making a withdrawal. Okay? And um, even silence can be a withdrawal. Even silence can be a, a withdrawal. So we want to think about the deposits. Here's some ways that you can make some, some deposits. I'm going to give you 10 deposits you can make in your wife's emotional and relational account with you. Here's the first one. Spend time with her alone. Spend time with her alone. That's absolutely a, a, an important way to be able to do that. And one of the ways you do that is you establish shared interests where you enjoy doing things together. Uh, one of the things that um, I, I've discovered, if I'm going to invest in my marriage... I need to have interests that my wife shares. Now, you all have interests that she doesn't share. I get that. But as I have developed new interests, and, and Bird has been great about this too. Uh, when I took an interest in downhill skiing, she learned how to downhill ski. When I uh, got back into motorcycling, um, we had a two-year conversation about that before I did. And, and she said, I remember the night where I'm, I'm talking about, and I'd just been out visiting a guy, and he's got this big dealership out in the Midwest, and, and I'm sitting on a Harley, and I get back home, and after two years of conversation, I said, I don't think I can get over this without having one. And she, in a moment of weakness, said, I think if I had my own. And I said, done. I called on the phone and ordered two Harleys right then. No kidding. That's what happened. And so we today still ride motorcycles together, bicycling together, kayaking together, taking walks together reading books together, doing that kind of stuff, shared interests, but time together, being intentional about that, making that happen, making that happen. And spending time with her alone. Guys, I want to give you, God has designed creation so that there are not only hours, but days and weeks and, and seasons and years. And I want to give you four things that have helped me greatly in my marriage by being intentional. By the way, men, most of us are goal-oriented in our careers. Would you agree with that? Men just seem to be hardwired to set goals and achieve them. Agree or disagree? Agree. Here's the problem. A guy gets married, the goal was to get married, to have a wife. 
And so now he's got another goal, finish my master's degree, get my career going, uh, buy the house, whatever it is. But most men never think about setting goals in their marriage. Guys, I got to tell you, that's bad. That's bad. It's a bad way to approach the relationship. You will always go in the direction of your goals. Your passion and energy will always follow your goals. So why not set goals in the area of your marriage? I'm going to give you four time-related goals that you can set. You can jot these down. Daily, you need to have a huddle time. I happen to be blessed to have a wife who loves the NFL. And she's been a Green Bay Packers fan since the time she was a little girl. And I, I would come home from a meeting at church on a Monday night. Matter of fact, her ring on her cell phone is Monday night football. It's so cool. So when I talk about huddling with her, she gets the metaphor. All right. And, and huddle time, huddle time is when you spend a minimum of 15 minutes, that's all it is, guys, having heart-to-heart, undistracted conversation about your day, about what God's been saying to you through the word about what's happening in her world, and you spend even just five minutes praying together. I want to tell you, an investment of 15 minutes a day will change your marriage. 15 minutes of undistracted conversation. We actually put a table and two chairs in our bedroom when we were raising kids, and we would tell our kids, this is huddle time. If you're not bleeding, the house isn't on fire, we don't answer the phone, and we don't answer the door. This is mom and dad's time. Don't distract us, okay? And the kids knew that that was a time that we had that was, it was almost like sacred time, 15 minutes a day. Sometimes it would be more, but never less. Weekly dates. You say, I can't afford a date. Guys, I get it. When we were raising kids, if we went out to a restaurant and we had a babysitter, it's like there was a, there was a taxi meter running the whole time that we were in that restaurant. I get that. So what we would do is we would have a date at home three out of the four weeks of the month. Candlelight dinner for two after the kids were fed. And they were maybe watching a movie or put to bed. And we would have a date or two. One clue, men, if you go out with another couple, it doesn't count. Why? Because you don't have conversation with your wife. You talk to the guy. So a weekly date. I have dated my wife every week for about 40 years now. We just had a date Wednesday night. Took her out for an outdoor concert and picnic, and we just had a phenomenal time. I love dating my wife. It is an, it's a deposit on her account. Here's another one. Whoops. There we go. Um, the the uh, quarterly getaway. Once a quarter, we get away from town, leave the kids behind, uh, 24 to 48 hours. Usually, I, I recommend you drive out of town at least an hour. Oh, when we lived here before, Traverse City was our place to go. And there's something about getting in the car and getting out of town that you began to wind down and really focus. And I actually would put money in a savings account every pay period so that we had the money to, to have a hotel and to do that. If you're on a fixed income, that's tough to do. But if you plan ahead, it's a lot easier than you think. That became a great time of just enjoying being together, undistracted. Again, not with another couple, not with somebody else, just the two of us doing that. And then annually, have a learning experience about marriage. Now, we had a marriage, um, we had a marriage seminar here. That would count for that. Uh, actually, we're going to have the marriage foundations class that we just, Joel and I just did, and John Van Dyke did the finance part of that, that we did this summer. We're actually going to do that this fall and open it up to all marriages. We, we just allowed this for engaged couples and people married less than five years. But this is going to be an open class that is an opportunity for you to learn about marriage this fall. And it was uh, the 15 couples that were in there. How many couples were in there if, you're, if you were there? Okay. 
And these guys can tell you, I, I think it was a pretty high impact time from what they're saying. So that's an opportunity for that. Ten deposits. Spending time with her alone. Now, man, I want you to think with me a little bit about this matter of being a, um, being a really good lover for your wife. Um, you ever heard that Greeks are better lovers? Well, I'm going to tell you they are. And the reason that they're better lovers is because, anybody in here Greek? No, okay. Greeks are better lovers because they got a better language of love. See, we have one word for love in our English. And we say, I love chocolate, I love my dog, I love my motorcycle, I love my wife. And it's the same word. And the problem with that is it's really hard to differentiate what, what love really is. Well, I want to give you some, um, some words here for love that are in the Bible. These three words are all found in the Bible. Agape love, that's not a fish, agape. Agape love is really talking about the, the love that is sacrificial and spiritual. It is the love that is described as the love of Christ, where Christ gave himself for us, all right? Phileo is a love that is a friendship love, a friendship love. Um, Philadelphia is the, is the city of brotherly love. Actually, if you go there and visit, it feels more like the city of brotherly shove, but it's really the city of brotherly love, a, a phileo love. And then eris is the, is the uh, a more erotic love. It is the sensual, sexual kind of love. Now, guys, which one do you think is the foundation of our cultural view of marriage? Eris. Eris. That's the attraction. I want to tell you, that's like building a marriage on quicksand. Because, guys, if you haven't figured out, as great as sex is in marriage, it doesn't really occupy that much time in the whole marriage relationship. You cannot build a marriage on Eris. It's made to be the frosting on the cake, not the cake. Phileo, the friendship factor, is really important. But it's hard to have phileo love if you don't have another kind of love, the agape love, the, the covenant-keeping love, the sacrificial love of God. So God's plan is that agape love is the foundation that builds the phileo love, that the eris love is built on that. And we are so caught up in romantic infatuation in our culture and our view of marriage. Men, they have actually scientifically studied how long infatuation lasts. You know how long it lasts? On an average, two years. So a guy meets a gal, they get married in the first year, and the first year may be wonderful for them, and, and you have this great romantic love. I mean, for her, it's like the Hallmark Channel, and, and for you, it's like this is the woman of my dreams. And then all of a sudden, that wears off, and she becomes the woman of your nightmares. Because most men, they think this is a great deal being married to her. And then it becomes an ordeal, and then they want a new deal. And so they meet somebody else. They get divorced, they meet someone else. Oh, this is a great deal. This is the right woman. And then it becomes an ordeal, and then they want a new deal. Guys, I remember going and visiting a man who was dead drunk because his neighbor was a member of our church, and they invited me to the home, and this, this, this marriage was ready to spin apart. And this guy, you know, she's trying to give him coffee to sober him up. And he says to me in his slurred speech, I said, well, how many times have you been married? Four times. This is his fifth wife. And he says this, if I could just find a good woman. 
And I don't know what came over me, but I looked him in the eyes and said, did it ever occur to you that you could be the problem? No. I never thought of that. Go figure. Men, here's, here's a great passage to define love. 1 John 3, this isn't in your notes, but please jot this down. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 is a great passage to define love. And I'm going to just give you the definition, and, and this is the foundation of it. The Bible tells us that if we, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Three key ideas from this passage about love to define love biblically. This is agape love. First of all, it is sacrificial. Christ laid down his life for us. Men, the symbol of this love is not a heart with an arrow through it or a cupid flying in the air. The symbol of this love is a cross. It is sacrifice. Love equals sacrifice. Therefore, men, the opposite of love is selfishness. Guys, I don't have to work hard at being selfish. Uh, being selfish to me is like falling off a log and the log doesn't even have to be wet. It's easy for me to be selfish. That's my default. But being sacrificial, that's very different. Secondly, I want you to notice the word need. Love focuses on the need of the other person rather than your needs. And thirdly, it is an action, not just words. Now, don't be like the guy who said, I told my wife I loved her when I first met her. When we got married, if I changed my mind, I'll let her know. No, you need to tell her that you love her. But I want you to tell you, if you don't back that up with action, it doesn't mean much. Love is the action of sacrificing yourself to meet another person's need. Write that down. Love is the action of sacrificing yourself to meet another person's need. It is the action of sacrificing yourself to meet another person's need. Now, when you start thinking about that and, and a wife's uh, need for this deposit, I want you to look at this picture. Anybody that can relate to that? I mean, it's complicated, man. It's complicated. And, and here's part of the reason that it's, that it's really complicated. When it comes to the relationship, a man cannot love his wife emotionally until she loves him physically. Unless you have agape love going on. A man needs to feel that physical love often in order to feel the emotional tie. But guess what, man? A wife can't love her husband physically until he loves her emotionally. See, for, for man, sex is like turning on the light switch. But for a woman, it's like plugging in the iron. It takes a little while for that to heat up. For men, it's just like that. You know, men will make their list, like, okay, I need to go to Home Depot, I need to mow the lawn, I need to have sex with my wife. And it's just like, it's just another thing that you're doing that you enjoy. But men, for her, she brings everything into the bedroom. She does. It's the whole, it's the whole relationship. Sex is a celebration of a relationship rather than just a task or a goal. Here's the next thing, men. Listen to her deeply. Listen to her deeply. A wife needs to be listened to. And we struggle with this sometimes as men. Um, we struggle with it. See, because we're used to solving problems and fixing things. We're used to solving problems and fixing things. And, and when we do that, 
we stop really listening because we're focusing on how to solve the problem. So I want you to see this um, quick video. By the way, this video that I'm showing you has had over 15 million hits on YouTube. And there's a reason for that I think you're going to understand. Okay? 15 million hits on YouTube. Anybody relate to that here? Okay. The rest of you weren't honest, okay? How do you respond differently to this? Here's some things I want to say about that. Number one, a wife really does need you to listen to her before you start solving a problem. Just focus on listening and focus on her thoughts and feelings when you're listening. Man, you got to understand, you got to do both thoughts and feelings. And don't treat her like the lawnmower. What I mean like that is like, if the lawnmower is not starting, you check the gas and then you change the spark plug, right? And if it's not cutting right, you take the blade off and you sharpen it. Your wife isn't your lawnmower. She's not, she's not just a problem to be fixed, okay? And here's what I've learned with Bert. When she's, when she's struggling with a problem, like I, I would come home and the kids, maybe she was having a rough day with them and she's telling me about that, and she just needed me to listen, I put a delay between that and solution time. Six hours to 24 hours later, I would come back and say, you know what you were talking to me about with that? I've been praying about that, and I want to just, and, and then when I, when I do that, I start with a question, not a should. You know the difference? Have you thought about this? Would, would you think this could work, a question instead of a should? When I tell her you should do this, then it just signals problem. I'm just a problem. But when I ask a question, it's a conversation. So men, when you're, when you're dealing with that kind of a thing, when your wife is hurting, focus on listening, thoughts and feelings, don't treat her like a lawnmower, so delay the solution time and start with a question. Here's, an, here's another deposit. Touch her non-sexually. For some men, every physical touch is going to lead to the bedroom. Men, for her, it's not that way. And holding hands, putting your arm around her, hugging her, giving her a back rub or a foot massage can be a, a very important expression of love to her, especially if she knows that you're not associating that with, with sex all the time. It can be something that fills her emotional deposit. Accepting her unconditionally. What happens when your wife makes a mistake, when she fails? 
How do you treat her? How do you treat her? Accept her unconditionally. Then um, Romans 5, verses um, 5 to 8, uh, a passage of Scripture that I want you to put there with that. When you accept her unconditionally, look at this. The Bible tells us in verse 8, God shows his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love for us is unconditional. And that same love that sent Jesus to the cross to die for us while we were still rebelling against him is now poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, verse 5. I love that. The same passage that tells me about God's unconditional love for me tells me that same love is poured in my heart through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives me a capacity to love men that I couldn't. Man, I want to, I want to just tell you gut level honest, I don't have the human capacity to love my wife the way God calls me to. I figured that out a long time ago. I don't have the human capacity to do that. But the love of God shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit gives me that capacity to reproduce the love of Christ, which is why your relationship with God is crucial to your relationship with your wife. Okay? Here's the next one. Be committed to her. Be committed to her. Never use the word divorce in your worst conflicts. Keep the D word out of your language. Man, if you, if you never talk, you'll never think that word and you never say that word, it's not going to have it's not going to have the potential to happen. No matter how bad it gets, that's not an option. I remember when our son went to kindergarten, he's walking home from the school that was uh, elementary school in our neighborhood, and he comes home and he says to his mom that day, Dan, he says, Mom, when are you and Dad going to get a divorce? And she said, well, why would you ask such a thing? Well, because he's naming off the kids in his kindergarten school that are, they're getting a divorce. And she sat him down and she says, that isn't going to happen to us. That's not, that is not something we're open to. Not, guys, I, if you've been through a divorce, I'm not, I'm not being critical or condemning. I, I know that in our culture today, there can be a person who doesn't want a divorce and, and legally it can't stop. I'm not talking about that. But I want to say, if you're married, that just can't be a part of your psyche that you're thinking about that because you're committed. You're committed. You're committed to the institution of marriage and you're committed to your wife. And here's another thing, man. If you're going to do that, you need to keep your eyes to yourself. We're not really talking about this in this session, but there's a book I want to recommend to you called Every Man's Battle. And it's talking about the battle with lust and how that battle is won or lost in your eyes. Men, if you win the battle with your eyes, you then won't be fighting the battle in your imagination. If you win the battle in your imagination, you will not be facing the desire in your choices. If you win the battle in your choices, you won't be facing it in your actions. You won't be facing it in your habits, in your character, and in your actual behavior, sharing that out. Every man battles with lust. There isn't a man in this place that doesn't battle with lust. I want to be right up front with you about that. Our sinful nature causes us to do that. But that doesn't mean that you have any excuse of being defeated. I remember driving up to a, to a stoplight here in Grand Rapids, and I'm sitting at the stoplight. My wife is sitting next to me, and two young ladies, very scantily dressed, are on this street corner. And I've learned to bounce my eyes, so I did one of these, just so I could just see out of the corner of my eye the changing light. The light changed, and I pulled ahead, and just then, my wife slapped me on the knee and says, thanks. Thanks for what? I saw what you did with your eyes. And I thought, Lord, thank you that I didn't use this excuse. Well, I'm just enjoying the aesthetic beauty of two women. This was not that time. Man, I want to tell you, fight the battle with your eyes. That's how you're committed to her. 
Um, here's another deposit. Encourage her with words. Encourage her with your words. When you're with her, you can confront problems but still affirm her. Ephesians 4.29. But men, also when you're apart from her, does she know that when you're apart from her, you're talking about her in loving and affirming ways? My wife said to me just this week that, that she had heard from other people about the way I talk about her when she's not there. And man, it makes a difference in her emotional account, the words that you use. How do you speak about your wife in front of others? I've known men, and, and I've been that, this man earlier in our marriage, that I would make a joke about my wife, and I'd be sarcastic about my wife, and I wounded her spirit, and I had to repent of that. I had to deal with that. And that's not, that's not a place I go anymore. It's better, men, for you not to let out of your mouth things that should have never been on your mind in the first place. Okay? Here's the next one. Take care of her financially. See, there's finances are a matter of lifestyle choices. And here's one. There's people that live above their means, at their means, within their means, or below their means. And the financial security that you give your wife is really going to depend upon where you fit in that. If you're living above your means, which is most of where America does through credit and debt, then you're not giving her financial security. If you're just at your means, then you're just skimping by and you just have to have one big bump in the road and you've got a problem. Within your means, that's better. But below your means means you now have resources to both invest and you have resources to save and you have resources to be able to give to God's work. You need to be targeting that you're going to live below your means. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out if you're going to be healthy financially, you spend less than you make. And uh, that's, that's just absolutely essential in terms of uh, making deposits, not just financially but spiritually. Here's the next one. Laugh with her. Don't laugh at her, men. Laugh with her. I think a sense of humor is like a shock absorber on the suspension system of life. And, and my wife and I have a lot of good fun laughing together. There's just things that happen that are just funny. And, and, and being able to laugh with her. When's the last time you and your wife laughed so hard that you cried together? I mean, just something happened and you're just laughing at what happened. And you're enjoying sharing that sense of humor together. My wife is an incredibly funny lady, and, and it's just, a, it's just a, a joy being married to her because she sees the funny side of life, and I want to see the funny. Man, can I tell you, I take God very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. And some men take themselves way too seriously. I'm serious about taking yourself so seriously, okay? It's not a good idea. Here's the next one. After God, but before all others, make her your top priority. Does your wife know, men, that after God, she comes before your job? She comes before your friends? She comes before your hobbies? She comes before your possessions? She comes before your kids? Does your wife know that after God, she is your top priority? Biblically, men, she should be. That's what Genesis 2.24 says. Does your wife know that? Does she feel that? Because at the end, it's just you and her. Just you and her. Here's the next one. Be her best friend. Be her best friend. Um, the friendship factor in marriage is absolutely essential to the health of the marriage. And I don't, I, I'm not just saying this, man, but I want you to know, when I, when I look at Joel, he and Melissa are best friends. They are. 
I look at our elders in our church, and I can tell you to a man, I believe every one of them, I could say, men, as elders, that their wives are their best friends. I mentioned last night a guy who was a multimillionaire. He's a friend of mine, and he's not a friend because he's a multimillionaire, but because we share common values. He said to me that he had, he had read some research on the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And to his amazement, he found out that the majority of them that are highly successful are still married to their first wife. Why? Because they're that kind of man. And that's why they serve well. Lee Iacocca wrote his autobiography. If you don't know who he, who he is or was, he's the guy who, who designed the Mustang. He worked for Ford Motor Company. And then he later took over Chrysler when it was in the pits of bankruptcy and brought it back up. Lee Iacocca in his autobiography said this. He said, I have no respect for a man who works all weekend. He said, I leave on Friday from work, and I don't think about work again until Sunday night. And I go into my office at home, and I start getting ready for the week. He said, I invest in my family over the weekend. Man, you need to be that kind of a man. Be her best friend. So what do you know about your best friend? Happiness is being married to your best friend. Men, we need to double down on the investment. If right now, if your marriage was a bank account, are you overdrawn? Is there money in the account? You're writing checks every day. Are you making deposits in your marriage? Man, I want to invite you right now at your tables to go and to discuss what it is that we've been talking about. There's some questions there, so go right at it at your tables right now.